Thanks, as always, to our good friends Cooper Tyre at the Justice Brothers at Toronto Motorsports and Bell Helmets USA. Slightly different feel this week uh, to the Week in the Sports Cars. Uh, Marshall Pruitt, MP, is taking a week of r and It's been a particularly taxing time for all of us in all sorts of ways, but uh, he'll be back very soon. Uh, rather sadly, for those of you that like your human beings attractive, that means that it's back. After a little wee while, we'll find out how long it's been since he's been with us on the Week in Sports Cars, is Stephen Kilby, Deputy Editor of the uh, DailySportsCar.com and also WC Correspondent for Racer.com. Stephen, how long has it been? And welcome back. Well, it's, uh, it's good to be back. It's good to fill in for Marshall. It's uh, obviously a massive downgrade, and I can feel the disappointment radiating from the listeners yeah. as yeah. we speak. I think yeah, the last so time I was on this was Convergence Week at Daytona and how different the world was then, eh? Good God, did we actually have Has anything there? happened since? No, it's been quiet, really. Remarkably, you know, nothing has happened No, since. no, no, there's nothing at all involving, I don't know, uh, lack of any possibility of international travel, motorsports, or indeed ingesting disinfectant. Nothing uh, like that has actually gone on. It's going to fall to you this week to do my normal job. And my normal job, as regular listeners will know, is to be the... Around. Bit of that. But uh, is what uh, Marshall would actually describe as being the selector. I, th- I can't really do his, uh, his kind of his accent, so I won't try. But uh, you get to choose where we go first. And then traditionally now we pause while we have the magnificent Baxter, Andrew Backer's jingles to introduce those sections. Where do you want to go first? Is it going to be IMSA? Is it going to be Wack Aslam's Elms Echo? Is it going to be General? Or is it going to be Thurm? Um, let's do general because it, the news of the week, I think, falls into general because we've had probably about 200 questions this week and 197 of them are about <laughs> Audi and pulling out of DTM. So should we start with that because it's the most... We'll start with that. But what I've forgotten, by the way, is just we usually try to reflect on the news of the week. There is one piece of news that I did want to just briefly reflect on with apologies. Um, and that is the passing uh, of Ricardo de Villa. Uh, Ricardo, good mate to everybody that met him in the paddock. Lovely guy. If you don't know Ricardo's name and background, you will certainly be familiar with some of the things he did. Uh, Something like 60 years in the business, thousands of races in just about every series you can imagine, from F1 down to Formula Ford in in single-seater racing, including both sorts of IndyCar racing. Uh, A1GP at that. Uh, in sports cars, everything from LMP1 down to GT4. Uh, super touring, some real success there with the Nissan Primeras back in the day. And, um, well, probably best known in the wider Formula One motorsport world as the designer of the initial cars for Fittipaldi, the uh, the FD01 to 04. The D is De Villa. Uh, so Fittipaldi, De Villa. Uh, Ricardo. Um, if you're familiar with Twitter, go and have a look. It's uh, at RDV69, uh, Ricardo's Twitter feed. Um, just absolutely encapsulates his attitude to everything. Read two, the tribute to uh, Ricardo from Andrew Cotton, his editor at uh, Race Car Engineering, where he regularly submitted columns um, for that August journal. Well worth a read, well worth a catch up. And from us to anybody out there that is missing. Uh, the astonishingly um, welcoming, kind, wise Brazilian 
with the astonishing coffee habits. Uh, our thoughts are with you. Uh, we're all grieving for Ricardo this week and will be for a long, long time. I think, though, Stephen, we're about to talk about something else that we think we're going to be grieving for um, before too very much longer. What are, have we got first in Herr General? Yeah, well, it seems like only yesterday, doesn't it, that we were looking back on Audi in, in LMP1, them pulling out of that. It's, it's, it's remarkable to think that it's, what, four years ago now. Um, but it's it's now time for them to move on from DTM. I think that's the biggest news of the week, motorsport-wise, aside from postponed and cancelled. Well, I guess this is cancelled, isn't it, in a way? Um, what do you reckon, Graham? We've had loads of questions through from DTM with everything from what does Super GT look like, how does this impact the Class 1 regs, um, what does it look like for other series, and what do Audi do, what do DTM do from here? What do you think in, in a general sense? General sense, um, I think there's, there's two or three things to say. It's not really a surprise, the timing it's always a shock, isn't it, when you get something that deals such a death blow to a programme. And I think in this case, as I'll go on to say in a moment, to a series that's got such history. Um, but uh, I can recall the day that Audi pulled out of LMP1. I can recall a conversation with Dr. Volkan Gurik and his anger that the decision had been taken to keep DTM and to remove LMP1. Um, his view was that was a very insular decision from Audi. I tend to agree with him. I think DTM's relevance outside of Germany has been sharply down on where it was decades ago. Uh, it's pretty clearly been a moving motor show, uh, frankly, a kind of a paddock motor show uh, around Germany and a couple of the surrounding marketplaces for quite a long time with the, remo- with, with the end of Mercedes' efforts at the end of 18, with the rather slotted in, uh, efforts of our motorsports and Aston Martin last year, it was already on life support. The reality is, in a kind of sort of kill bill way, someone's just put a sword right through it. Uh, reality was that we had, um, what was it, uh, 16 cars due to take part in a season that will do well to get underway at all. Um, and of those 16 cars, nine were Audis. The best you can therefore expect, because there is just no chance at all of those nine cars being replaced by other manufacturers is that it finds some way to survive as a kind of customer uh, team effort. The problem is the costs. Uh, the costs are, may, are met by the manufacturers. Anybody that's been to a DTN race will know the extraordinary show that is put up uh, on in the paddock. It's all manufacturer money and that's gone. So for me, with absolute regret, I think it's done. Uh, I think they'll they'll give it a go, but the, the tone of Gerhard Berger, who's the head of, of course, the promoters ITR of DTM, I think said a lot. Um, that you could hear it in his tone, trying to be positive, but the reality is, I don't think there's anybody out there knocking on the door to come, and I think that's one of the reasons why Audi made the decision. It was effectively had their arm up their back to stay, or it it it, it it's finished. I think it's. It's a dead duck. There are other racing series nationally in um, in Germany. I know that DTM before they uh, they set uh, f- went forward with uh, Class One, looked at a range of things, including GT3. Of course, we've got the Adec GT Masters. We've got VLN, of course, in in Germany. Uh, all the other different products, but also looked at GTE being a possible. Um, uh, change for what we now see in Class 1 and its predecessors. I think the reality is they've made their choice, they made their bed, they decided to lie in it, 
And I think they frankly decided to get up and get a cup of coffee and call that relationship a day. I think it's done. I cannot see a way back for that. If it does stagger into 2021, my guess is that will be the last we'll see of class one in Germany. As for the question, I know that come in from our good mate, Arjo Connell. Where does this leave Super GT? Well, number one, I don't see any reason why it should affect Super GT in its home marketplace if their business plan revolved around expansion. I think one of those opportunities has completely gone now. Um, do I think there's a possibility that you'll see a Toyota, a Honda, a Nissan come to DTM to save the day? Well, if they do, it's not going to be nine of them, is it? And I think the reality is um, it could be a kind of finger in the dike effort if that were to happen. I don't see any signs of that happening. And I don't is it see more likely that BMW would come racing Super GT well, with the cars they've already got? Well, possibly, or find a customer for those cars, I think is the other thing. Um, the reality is what it comes down to now is, is BMW prepared to pay the bill? And in the current climate, I think that's a huge ask. My view, my opinion today is I think this will be the last season of DTM as we know it in its current iteration. It's sad because the timing is brutal because it's not like this is the worst time, isn't it, to be able to sit back and make a radical change to something and, and revitalise it. The sad thing is it's going to be the first of many. There's, I don't think there's any doubt we're going to see uh, other motorsports championships uh, struggling here. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that we're going to see um, some teams and some efforts and perhaps some championships uh, struggling and even falling by the wayside. More or less every conversation I'm having at the moment with professional race teams is that, you know, there are struggles with cash flow. There's no income at the moment. You know, whether or not there's a government scheme here or there that's going to prop up, the reality is people have got to turn up with remarkably large amounts of money to make these things happen. And I think we better brace ourselves here. This is not going to be an easy time if you're a lover of motorsports. Um, you know, there is a bit of a hard stop, I think, for a number of programmes uh, coming and of course the longer we go before we get back not just to going back to racing but going back to the normality that was racing the longer that period goes on and i think that's going to be quite a long time the more damage that's going to do to increasingly significant parties in our sport it is a very worrying time right now mm. do you, before we move on from this do you, do you think that audi pull out was always going to happen and that they've yeah. used yes, the COVID situation as kind of the final nail, nail in the coffin and almost as an excuse, if you will. Or do you, or do you think Audi would have carried on No, I think it, well, situation I, not arisen? I think, the, I think we're about to see some extreme measures taken by a number of big manufacturers. I think we've got to remember here, you know, if you're sitting there at home uh, doing what I've been saying you need to do and Obviously, you've switched off Netflix and you're sitting down listening to the Marshall Pruitt podcast at the moment. But if that's what you're doing, and I've no doubt you and your families have all got the same kind of concerns about income and savings and all of that stuff, then think about the way that works in the commercial world. Hands up anybody that's gone out and even looked at buying a car over the last two or three months. Anyone? No? Okay. Uh, That's happening around the world. And that means that what you've got are major global industries if not at a standstill, then certainly on life support right now. And everybody hoping that it's effectively a pause button um, on the economy and that you can restart that. Let's hope that's the case, because uh, if it's not, then the world is going to look very, very different in not too much further down the line. 
Sorry if that sounds as if it's a terribly bleak view of the world, but I think we've got to expect that the economic situation that's going to prevail globally uh, after this is going to be very different from where we are right now. And our high streets, our industry, our commerce is going to have to accommodate losses uh, through this period of time on a different level that we've seen any time outside of wartime. No doubt about that. Think about this for a moment. The, the, uh, the, the national debt in the UK to the USA from World War II was finally paid off. The final payment, I think I'm right, was made in 2005. Think about that for a moment. 60 years to That's recover. That's one hell of a mortgage. That's one hell of a mortgage. <laughs> but, the, you know, we are talking here vast amounts of money, and I think it's going to need a global effort to reset here. Quite what that reset looks like, quite who the casualties are in that, that reset, I think remains to be seen. But brace yourselves, because there's going to be some big names. Mm. Let's move on. To do more general questions, or should we switch up to him? So what do you reckon, Karma General? Uh, just, just have to note, by the way, I'm very pleased to hear that uh, in the absence of Rocky this week, uh, who is that in the background? That is Suki in the background. Suki in the uh, background. Meowing away. I can tell that, sir. The listeners will be pleed to know that we have got a feline friend available. Uh, Oscar the dog, by the way, is at the moment lying upside down on the couch in the house, so we won't be hearing from him later. Um, is he eating all the bread again, is he? He hasn't eaten all the bread. Um, he, he has been a very naughty boy in other ways, but uh, we, we'll, we'll draw a veil over that one because it's not fair. Um, <laughs> he's been a good dog for most of the week. Let's go on to other uh, general. I'll read a couple out here. Um, this one from Luke Birkin. Can any other circuits hold two race meetings at once as Silverstone can with the national and international pits? It's not just the pits, of course. It's the ability to format the track into two separate entities. Uh, I can think of a couple. I think Paul Rickard are able to do that. They have a small pit lane at the back end of the circuit, which is um, linked into what is now the SRO Technical Centre. I've got a funny feeling Yas Marina might be able to as well. Any that immediately spring to mind with yourself, Stephen? You could, you could well, you can host two races at the same time at the Nürburgring, and I've seen that in action at the Old Town oh, yeah, Grand Prix yeah. in summer, where they'll run a classic race on the Nordschleife and run, you know, historic F ones on the on the GP loops. That's that's pretty impressive, especially if you sit at grandstand, you can see cars on the GP loop and on the Nordschleife at the same time. The other um, one that's just occurred to me. I I've got a funny feeling we were told that there is a format they can use at the Bend that can do it. I think because there's so I th- many variations. Of I think circuit. the Ben can do it, and uh, I think uh, now I'm trying to think of uh, tracks I've actually walked where there's a cut through you don't normally use. What about Cota? Cota, yeah. So there's there's multiple lots of Cota, isn't there? Bahrain, uh, Bahrain, yeah. Um, but there's not two pit lanes at Bahrain. I guess you'd have to run them at the same pit lane. Uh, fair enough. That that might be the case. Uh, and I've got a funny feeling there might be a very short um, option. No, maybe not. But I was thinking about the Red Bull Ring. I think not. I think that's just a, t- a shorter version of the track. I don't think there's a opportunity to do two of them. But there's a number there that have got uh, the possibility of doing it. Whether or not that will be any help to get at least national racing underway in various uh, places uh, could be uh, quite an interesting one. Bahrain, by the way, is um, the only place I think at that stage that we'd had 
the finale of two FIA World Championships at the same time, not just on the same day, but at the same time on two separate tracks because it was it three years ago, Stephen, we had the final round of the FI World Endurance Championship mm, uh, right. as well as the World Karting Championship on the adjacent mm. karting circuit. So uh, there's that one as well. I don't, I'm not counting that, by the way, as a separate um, circuit within the same thing as there's plenty of other places, including Le Mans, of course, that have got separate karting uh, circuits. But there you go. There's a few more than I think are able to do it. I'm sure our listeners will correct us immediately on Twitter on this one. Probably hits. wrong on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one. Carl, Carl Brown says, could sports car racing be more popular without so many variations of it? Would it be more popular if there fewer versions of WC, IMSA, LMS, etc.? I'm fond of pointing out that there are no current championships that feature sports prototypes that have the same class uh, divisions. That will change I think, no, it won't change with the Asia Le Mans series because the Asia Le Mans series will still have GT3 and not GTE cars. But all of those uh, that you mentioned there have different class structures and it is confusing. We've talked before on the weekend sports cars about uh, a sports car racing 101. In other words, explaining to people coming in exactly how this works. I can tell you that is in the works for daily sports car and I hope for racer.com as well in as palatable a form as we can make what is extremely confusing. Would it make... Uh, make things easier i think it would for us purists i think the reality is you've just got to turn people on to the fact that sports car racing is just different it is two three four five different races on the same track at the same time that that in essence is what we've actually got uh with the vast majority of our sports car racing endurance championships in the case of something like vln it's about 47 different races at the same time um, what do you think, Steve? It's a difficult one because if, if you lose a few championships, it doesn't necessarily mean the, the ones that remain are going to be any more popular because it's all surely down to how much presence they have, how much marketing is behind it, what the coverage is like, things like that. To get new fans on board, it's the biggest problem is making sure that people know it exists in the first place beyond things like the Le Mans 24 Hours. Um, yeah. In terms of the, the, the racing might be better if you had fewer series and therefore better, more quality grids in the series that remained. And if the structure of classes was simpler, that would certainly help novices and, and teams be able to compete in multiple championships with the same car more than they currently do outside of things like maybe GT3 and P2. Um, but it's just getting it into the mainstream is just a, a real task. It's a but, real task. I guess what I'd say here is I... I have a dream. Um, and that is, it's a, it's a quick in. This is not one, by the way, uh, MP, by the uh, Marshall, who's still be producing this show for us where we need the, uh, the Boucher's Hammer Emporium jingle. But um, if we do get to the stage where there were heavy impacts on the industry, on the sports from the outcome of COVID-19, I hope that is the starting gun for collaboration with Watts we've got that if we are going to um, look for a better way forward, I hope that does have people at the moment in commercial competition taking the view that rather than slicing a smaller pie ever more thinly, that they can actually see the advantages of sitting around the same table and seeing whether or not, whether or not that's 
you know, improving a weekend package, whether or not that is looking at that class structure moving forward, whether or not we can actually make uh, some positive changes for the future of the sport. That would be a triumph out of adversity. If we do get to that stage, I, I sincerely hope that we can find that as a way forward. It's my last word on it, but uh, could it be more popular? I, I think that's less of it's less of a challenge to itself than the fact there's just so much of it. I don't think it's a matter of uh, the variations. I think it's a matter of there is just so much of it out there. Um, and we are beginning to get to the stage where there are clear dividing lines between pretty large championships, which for the most part are marketed to the people that are competing and pretty large championships, which for the most part are marketed to the people that are watching. And they're very different approaches in business terms. Um, last one before I give you a few to select here. This is from Matej Pimper. Um, and Matej, that's not a name I've seen before. So you're very welcome on board here to the happy crew. If something happens to manufacture GTEs and therefore affects GTM, this is a reference, I'm sure, to the um, to the uh, potential post LMDH, if and when that happens, for uh, some kind of necessity of looking at the GT classes. Uh, he asked, what would it take for a customer team to buy, for example, a Mercedes GT3, convert it to a GTE? Is it too difficult or expensive or impossible? In some cases, impossible. In the case of the Aston Martin Vantage and the Ferrari 488, they do have conversion kits. You can have one and the same car, same chassis, uh, can actually race in both specifications. But for the most part, it's rather more difficult. It's an integration of variety of different systems, including uh, some of the dimensions of the car, the electronics of the car, um, the way in which balance of performance is applied to the car, all of that stuff, and it's very, very expensive indeed. So I think for the most part, it would require an absolute re-engineering of the basic car. And once you get into that, frankly, you might just as well build the car from scratch, scratch in the first place. You have a crack at from, from Aston Martin and, and Ferrari must be rubbing their hands together a little bit. In a, well, probably not rubbing their hands together at a time like this, but they've got a bit of flexibility more than most. In the fact, they can change what championship they're entering on short notice if they if they need to. If the landscape of this looks completely different and all they've got is a GT, GTE car and there's yep. nowhere to race a GTE, they can convert it to a GT3 car and bob your ankle. It's it's been well, done. I mean, I mean, you know, JMW Motorsport famously bought a GT3 Ferrari, made the conversion for GTE, took it to Le Mans, and won for its first race. I think oddly, JMW have never raced that car as GT3. Um, you've got the Aston Martin thing, where Aston Martin were testing the car as a GTE in Spain, as I recall. The car was then due to make its racing debut as a GT3 at the Nurburgring. Um, the guys took uh, five hours to make that conversion, put it on the back of the ProDrive truck, off it went, uh, and I think they put it on pole. Um, and, you know, it's pretty extensive work required for this. It's not kind of plug this in, plug that out. In the case of the Aston Martin, it's an engine transplant for starters, as well as some electronic uh, changes and bodywork changes. So it's not the work of five minutes, but it is, in the case of the Aston Martin, the work of five hours. Uh, will we see other people making that same choice. I don't, at the moment, see anybody committing to a, another new uh, GTE platform until such time as things, you know, sort themselves out to, as to where we're going. That is an interesting question. It, it does fascinate me when you get companies, and I guess Rebellion have done it as well, haven't they, with their Dakar, 
or they go and do something completely different. It it does get me interested in, in looking at other championships, certainly, um, and, and all sorts of things like that with the Dream Race where we had Super GT and DTM. I don't usually watch those championships, but when organisations or manufacturers do something a bit different, it gets you to watch it. Um, outside of, I guess, Glickenhaus and Rebellion, Aston's a good suggestion from James there because they've already got um, a product that would kind of work with that. What about that Lamborghini? Because they've got a four by four, haven't they? Well, back in the day, back in the day at Dakar, we saw some pretty stock looking Mercedes G wagons, Range Rovers um, uh, taking part in Dakar, actually winning back in Dakar. Did Jackie X win in a Mercedes G wagon back in the day? I think he might well have done. Uh, but things have moved on to far more specialist machinery. So, you know, it might require a bit of a reset, might require us looking towards more production-based cars in, uh, in, more, um, in, in more kind of high-profile series. We see a bit of it, don't we, with uh, the way that Toyota go racing at the Nürburgring 24 hours. They, you know, often have brought the, the latest uh, road car they're about to launch to have a bit of a play. We've seen the same with BMW Mini, actually, back in the day with the Mini Roadster. Uh, coming there and, and beyond that even the Bathurst 12 hour uh, some years ago with the Fiat 500s being launched into the Abarth 500 launched into the marketplace that was uh, interesting GT3s and Fiat Abarths across the top of the mountain at terrifying approach speeds I think it might the require... interesting one with, with, with Aston Martin is they do have when it, when it comes specifically to rally crosses they do have that link already because the ProDrive operation that runs Aston Martin Racing didn't they recently do a Renault Megane they did into world rallycross they so did. they've already done it in the same facility haven't they i guess it's a matter of whether or not they've got a platform they think would be uh would be relevant for it and whether or not that's a market that they want to go to uh, i think look at the kind of cars that are currently in rallycross there's not really a relevant platform to aston martin in their marketplace but rally i mean you know we've we've had some pretty high profile efforts aston martin being one of them porsche i know it's specifically counted out here the kind of gt rally uh, side of things that i think has got uh, some interest and you know i think that's an area where there could be the potential for uh, a bit of um expansion we, i think we've seen all sorts i seem to recall somebody putting a lamborghini gallardo into that rally uh, class as well some years back and certainly down in south america um, I can certainly recall seeing an Aston Martin DBRS9 um, competing in national rallies uh, down in Argentina from memory. So there's all sorts of places where you might see it. Uh, it's always interesting and fun to see a bit of an outlier. And anything, frankly, that that moves us away from that kind of cookie-cutter, where is this GT3 championship? Uh, you have to look at what language the, the roadside, the, sorry, the trackside banners are in to work out whether or not you're in brazil france you know uh, belgium or australia um anything that gets us away from that slightly over homologated feel that we've got at the moment i think it's a good thing what's next now might be the chance to do some of that sort of experimenting um james Cartons, the next question he says graham i recently re-listened to the bob Barsher episode of dinner with racers thoughts and prayers are with him and he spoke to uh, spoke about being prepared to talk about death and why drivers get in the cars. I was wondering if that's something that you or other commentators you know prepare for. If you do, how do you prepare for it? Well, first and foremost, absolutely best wishes to Bob. He's uh, 
coming through his fight uh, with the, the kind of character we know that uh, that man's got. Um, I'm not sure you can prepare for that. Um, it's something we face in everyday life. Doing it on live TV, live radio is something rather different. And I've seen people get it right far more often than I've seen people get it wrong when it has happened. And I think the the key to it is this. There are two keys to it. One is be human being. Two is be professional and know when to say nothing. Um, there's a point in those situations, whether or not it is uh, a death or whether or not it's serious injury, you know, we've seen rather more of that, of course, where it's just time to stop talking. Absolutely do not uh, speculate and move on and talk about other things whilst the information is gathered. It's a terrifically difficult part of the the skill set to master. And I think it takes experience. I think it takes experience to do it. People who are doing live events coverage, whether that's trackside commentary as well as broadcast, of course, um, will will have had the the the, um, the experience of having to deal with incident without knowing what the outcome is going to be. Uh, and it is very difficult. But for me, it is about being human. It's about being professional and not feeling as if you have to talk and speculate because the reality is at that point, it stops being your story to tell and starts to be uh, those that are dealing with the outcome of what's has unfolded before your very eyes and potentially before the very eyes of the people sitting trackside waiting for you to tell them or indeed at home on their sofas waiting for you to tell them. At that point, the best thing you can do is to say, as soon as we've got an update, we will tell you. When you're faced with the worst news, it's happened to me just once. Um, and that was, of course, at 2013 with uh, my friend, uh, the late and very great Alan Simonson. I was not in the booth at that moment, but I was in the booth uh, with Radio Le Mans, with John Hindoff, when we confirmed the news at 1am um, that Alan had left us. And that moment is still with me like it was yesterday. Um, I'll never forget it. And I'll say this much. Um, John did a magnificent job, as did the whole crew, as they all, of course they always do, of dealing with that uh, awful news. And again, I'd say this. Uh, I have a deep appreciation of those that do these jobs professionally and they get it very right much much more often than they get it wrong and for that i think we can all as human beings be grateful nathan mm. barn next for 24 hour races do teams and drivers shift their sleep schedules around when they expect to be active in the days and weeks before the race or is it just a shock to the system no amount of preparation can really pay off and you just run on coffee and adrenaline um very different approaches to it. And sports science has kind of kicked in in recent years. You'll find a lot more physical preparation, nutrition, exercise comes into the preparation for these guys. Remember, sharp differences now from the way that these races used to be run. Even in the fairly recent past, these are now 24-hour sprint races. These guys are getting in and they are 100% uh, those cars from the second they're actually set off from a driver change. So the physical demands are extreme. Uh, so they have to try to plan for rest. I think in some cases 
of course, people find it difficult to get actual sleep, but rest. They get excellent advice, certainly from the big teams and the big professional teams too, uh, that have got people either as dedicated uh, physical preparation, um, massage, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, dealing with kind of the psychological techniques that you can help just to switch off for short periods of time. But um, yeah, I think the answer is it differs, but the reality is. Most of these guys, girls, are trying to get significant rest through a 24-hour period. They're going to find they're in real trouble if they don't. And this year in particular, we have had other years where we've had back-to-back 24-hour races. And, you know, you've found people that will admit that they're they're running into trouble uh, when one week of physical and mental preparation runs into another. So one other thing I'd say as well, and, and there's an interesting example of this that happened at the Daytona 24 hours where you remember that Ben Keating a driver I am lost in admiration for his levels of ability at the wheel um, did say that uh, doing double duty in uh, GT and in LMP2 he thought perhaps uh, ultimately what had been a bit of a mistake and we saw uh, Ben struggle later on deeper into the race after a stellar start uh, in the P2 car struggled later in the race and uh, I think that was probably a, just a bridge too far remembering Ben of course whilst an epic driver and in very good physical and mental condition is not a professional uh, racer and I think that possibly caught him out I know drivers who do all sorts of different things um, I think it's Rob Bell told me that he never sleeps during a 24 hour race he will never get any, any semblance of sleep um, and I also know drivers who will sleep the whole period between their stints in the car during a 24-hour race. So they'll just they'll just spend all their time in a back room somewhere, either getting a massage or something, and then then taking sleep. And then there are others who just want to stay up and watch the whole thing because they just they're too wired. And, and it's difficult, isn't it, Grant, to prepare too far in advance for sort of disrupted sleep patterns because during the week leading up to the 24-hour race, you're on a normal race race weekend if you like schedule of having to get up early in the morning and you know drive during the day you might yep. have a night practice or something but before a 24-hour race in that week leading up to it you're not driving a car at three o'clock in the morning i think i think the other thing is you know it's very different depending on the race meeting i mean le mans is a very strange timetable you know long days of no activity whatsoever before we get into track activity in the afternoon the late evening into the early morning um, the other one, just just immediately remember, by the way, you may recall some years ago with a big weather interruption for the Nürburgring 24 hours. And I'm trying to think which of Hans Stuck's sons it was that they struggled to wake up because he was asleep in the car. So he basically s- s- uh, sat in the car under red flag and just dropped off to sleep and was in deep sleep at that point. So, you know, it's, I think it's very different. It's it's very different. Um Yes, you can try to be conditioned and prepare for it, but the reality is we're all physiologically, psychologically different, and people are going to have the very different ways of dealing with those kinds of pressures. What we've got next, Stephen? We've got Matt Anderson, who says, um, professional sports car racing has always attracted its fair share of unique characters in the gentleman driver ranks, from actors and celebrities to businessmen, lawyers, doctors, drug dealers, strippers. Which driver stands out to you? as being the most bizarre, sort of where does this guy come from character. My vote would go to, is it Rael? Rael, yes. Rael, yep. the noted cult leader that I remember yep. watching racing in an SCCA World, World Challenge race back in the early 2000s, along with 
uh, is harming a female disciple. Completely correct, because they're utterly bizarre. You'd have to go a long way to uh, to, to get further away from a dose of reality than that. Uh, well, cuckoo clock was, but yeah, we we do have, don't we, our fair share of uh, unique characters, whether or not that's to do with their lifestyle choices, their area of business, etc. Some very strong personalities. I think Rail's a, a, a good call. Anybody that springs to mind that you've come across, Stephen? Um, it, it's not terribly crazy, but it does amaze me someone like uh, President Fion, who's president of the ACO, um, obviously has has a career in the medical field. And he does get in a car and drive, doesn't he? Doesn't he yeah. race at Le Mans Classic? He's raced uh, several cars at Le Mans Classic. It's, it's, uh, an, it's amazing, year. really. Just to yeah, he's a surgeon, isn't he? Well, yeah, he is. Uh, he's an ophthalmic surgeon. So, uh, yeah, Pierre drove two or three cars, a Lotus Elite, I seem to remember, I think, and a Lan. I think he shared the Lan with his brother, the ex-French Prime Minister, no less, uh, Francois Fillon, uh, but also took part in the demo run for the Global Endurance Legends in a Panels LMP, uh, sorry, um, GT1 car and got out of that. And I, that was uh, his worst car, right? Pardon? Do you reckon that was no, his worst car? No, no, no. I think looking by the, uh, the look on Pierre's face when he got out of it, I think it was amongst his best. And a firm friend of Don Panels, of course, back in the day. So um, all sorts. I, I, you know what? I should have thought and prepared a bit, a bit more about that one. There I remember be... seeing Maxi Jazz in a Porsche Carrera Cup. Oh, GB Maxi race. Jazz was around for a long time. And he wasn't very good. He <laughs> did the Ford Fiesta Cup for a long, long time. Look, there will be people out there who don't know who Maxi Jazz is. Mm, it, I mean, isn't he supposed to be a lovely guy? I'm sure they all are. I, um, I don't know anybody in there. I don't know if anybody in motorsport that you could describe as anything other than a lovely guy. By the way, Marshall, this is where you put on the Bushu's Hammer Emporium jingle here right now. Um, <laughs> Moving on to people who are lovely guys, Don Gregory says, can you briefly discuss Michael Avignati's racing career or lack thereof? <laughs> Michael, well... I to do that. Well, um, yes, storied, I think it's fair to say. Um, met him twice, uh, once at uh, an IMSA race, once um, uh, racing for JMW, I think, for the Mod 24 Hours. Neither conversation uh, left me thinking I must invite him round to dinner at some point at all. That terrible PR back in the day and the days of Tully's Coffee chose some really bad partners for that one. But um, I think, Michael, you've seen his combative style um, as a lawyer through the Stormy Daniels stuff. I sort of think that's the kind of resting face he's got. Um, Not much more to say than that. Not somebody I've had a great deal of experience of, uh, professionally, um, and the limited experience I've had of it, uh, um, I have to say, I did rather recognise the character, the TV character I'd seen through the uh, the baiting of Donald Trump days. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's as much as I can say about that. Uh, let's have a look at Shane Martin. Uh, thinking the other day about uh, Pete Brock in USA, Peter Brock in Australia, that uh, both were top level drivers in a similar time period but no relation to each other. Do you know of any other top drivers that have the same or similar name, but have not been family or named after somebody else? I th- think of a couple. Um, what about you, SK? What, uh, one or other, another? Well, we, we, we had a discussion about this before we started recording, didn't we? We came up with Lux and Jaeger. Yep, Eric Lux. So two Eric Luxes. There's Eric Lux, the driver, the IMSA driver. Eric Lux, the 
uh, owner of Genie Capital and previous owner of the Lotus F1 team, both um, drive a variety of uh, GT and prototype uh, race cars around Europe. But on the pro front, Thomas Jaeger. There are two Thomas Jaegers, an Austrian Thomas Jaeger and a German Thomas Jaeger. And they have often been confused uh, for each other. Um, beyond that, there's one Christoph Boucher, um, and there's no one else like him anywhere in the world. Are there two uh, Matt Bells? There are. No, you're right. You're absent. There are two Matt Bells. There are two Matt Bells. Well done. There's Matt Bell, American Matt Bell, and Matt Bell, not American Matt Bell, the younger, some would say more attractive, uh, or indeed less unattractive, uh, the more shoot or less bald uh, brother of the just aforementioned Rob Bell. Absolutely spot on. So Matt Bell, another one. So Matt Bell, Thomas Yeager, Eric Lux, Peter Brock. There's your four. Any more, put them on Twitter, hashtag Twisk, uh, and let us know, and we'll refer those back in next week's show. Next up, Josh Ridgen. Been watching old British GT races. You really are bored, aren't you? <laughs> I really enjoyed the ones at Rockingham. His question is, why did the track close? Might be worth, before we go into that, to talk about um, uh, Rockingham. This is Rockingham in the UK, not Rockingham in the US. Built on the site of an old steelworks on contaminated ground. Long periods of discontent with local authorities um, and some of the local population about noise. Was built as a full oval, uh, hosted uh, champ car racing, where the... Uh, Champ cars, of course, hold the lap record there. Spectacular speeds there, but also had an infield course, which was used by a variety of um, national racing, a couple of international races as well. Um, big grandstands, pretty impressive. Empty grandstands. Yeah, uh, pretty impressive infrastructure. Have seen a couple of race meetings there, pretty well attended, but tended to be alongside things like... Um, you know, pop concerts actually being held at the same time. I think the reality, though, Stephen, was the commercials didn't quite stack up. No, it's it's a shame because I'm a, I'm a rare specimen in that I used to really enjoy going to work. I used to go for British touring cars and just sitting in the grandstand at any circuit. Great view. See the, yeah. yeah, but the view's brilliant. You can see the whole lot. And it actually produced some decent racing. Um, like it says, the British GT races, there were some pretty good ones around there. But... It, Contrary to belief, it's actually still there and it looks just like it did when it closed for racing. Yeah. I mean, was it, well, where were, what was it? WC at Silverstone. Yeah. Um, where I was there for a good year and you just drive in um, and it looks exactly the same and there's still, you know, the track's still functional and it still functions for track days and filming, I think. Are they, de- just, are they, are they going to demolish the condemned grandstands? I think they were because the, I, yeah, the big. Yeah, that is the plan. Yeah, the big grandstands at Turn 1 and uh, Final Turn, I think, are coming down because they're structurally unsafe. And I think that's probably rather more to do with lack of use and maintenance and, indeed, the ground they were built upon um, than it is. Is it the same at the Lausitz Ring, where it still looks exactly the same, but they're just not racing on it? Uh, I don't know much about the Lausitz Ring, to be honest with you. It's gone quiet, hasn't it? uh, But, yeah, they're not really a, a great deal of opportunity to race there anymore. So... Yeah, that's uh, Rockingham. Rather sad because, like you, I enjoyed it. It had a great view from the press room, a bit like the Daytona press box. Uh, you could see about 80% of the, the whole track and thoroughly enjoyed the few races I did there, particularly with British GT. Went to a couple of tests there as well, which were uh, good fun. Um, next up, we've got Damien Peachman. 
after Nissan started dropping their GT Academy graduates, how many of them are still racing? I think it's a surprising number. I mean, Jan Mardenborough, without a shadow of a doubt, GT500, of course, still in uh, in Japan. Uh, who else uh, you reckon? Yeah, there are plenty, and they just don't quite have the same profile yeah, level of program. Yeah, that they were racing before. Um, Ricardo, Plus, Sanch- Ricardo Sanchez still does. Yes, Mexican I- winner. I seem to recall Jordan Tresson doing VLN races and maybe the number of 24 hours recently. Wolfgang Reap kind of he seems can, to turn it, up for the odd drive here and there. Yeah, He's certainly doing some e-racing right now. And I think we've said Lucas Adonis hasn't raced for a little wee while, but is still a professional race driver. So, you know, not a bad little hit, um, uh, Rape. For, bear in mind how long ago these guys were winning that contest. Uh, what you about know, Cotter? Does he still race? He does. I think he still does. I saw Brian. Um, uh, did I bump into him? Might have been at Watkins Glen a couple of years ago. But uh, certainly he's very active, unsurprisingly, perhaps, in the current sim racing um, you know, uh, applications that are going on around the world. But uh, that's not bad in terms of the numbers of people uh, that came through as you know lauded uh, champions of it. But without a doubt, um, you know, Jan Mardenborough, the most successful of the lot at the moment. What's next? Jakob Bem, who says, what do you appreciate the most about your favourite endurance drivers? Is it their one lap pace, their adaptability to the events on track, their skills with a hammer or something entirely different? Um, for the most part, for me, it's their, uh, it's all of that. Um, it, it, you, you've got to be in awe of the, these guys. It's the consistency for me. It's their ability to just punch out um, lap time after lap time after lap time after lap time. What I love to see is a professional driver in a pro-am format getting in uh, a car hopelessly behind the curve because, of course, what's been soaking up the time has been their their amateur um, teammates and just relentlessly hammering away at it. I had good reason to remember this um, for feature that we'll be running on Delhi Sports Car in the next week or two, uh, having a chat with none other than Tim Sugden about uh, his ex-driving partner and good friend and the late and lovely Steve O'Rourke uh, and the MK McLaren. And, you know, the, remember the days in the late 90s of Steve and Tim campaigning the long-tail McLaren in the British GT Championship. And quite often, uh, it would almost always be Steve to start the car and, you know, quite often he'd be up against the pros with Tim to get in at the end of the race. And these are the days where, by the way, Lister would field Julian Bailey, ex-Formula One driver, and Jamie Campbell-Walter in the same car. And they would still be competitive. Uh, that's a mark of the kind of pace you're talking about. That's a thing to see when you can actually get drivers being consistent, aggressive and fair. Um, that's what I like to see. The other part I like to see, and this is completely professional uh, part of it, and I'm sure you appreciate the same, Stephen, is that those people that get out after doing that and explain how and why, how they did it and what they had to cope with in doing it, which makes it easier to tell the story and explain why what they do is as spectacular as it is. Mm, completely agree. I would, I would say as well, uh, there's two things that I really appreciate is drivers who are particularly good when conditions change during an endurance race. So when, yep. when you know rain suddenly starts coming down, they're on the wrong tyres. Who there are some guys who are just demons when that happens, um, and also when there's just some level of crisis or you know it's close to the end of a race and it's a tight one between two cars for the win, and just seeing how 
certain drivers cope with the pressure of it just being a couple of laps and you've got a chance to win you know a massive race like it like a Le Mans like a Bathurst something like that just seeing how they cope because some just don't don't quite cope with it others it's their time uh, they're in the zone and there's nobody that can stop them yeah it's, it is that thing about exerting pressure when opportunity is there and the number of times you've seen it and you've said right they need to do three seconds a lap for the next 45 minutes on the car ahead of them. The people that can do that... With warm tyres. Yeah, in mixed conditions very often, at night, in dreadful weather, blah, 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 with a car that might be past its best, they're the special ones without a shadow of a doubt. Right, Herr Ganarelli's done. Where are we going to go next? Are we going to go IMSA? Are we going to go Weck Aslam's Elms Akko and finish with fun? What do you want to do next? Let's do IMSA. There's a handful of IMSA questions this weekend, Graham. So, what, what, what? No, 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 no. You've not been on this a while, have you? No. Right, no, so what see. we have to do, though, is out. let's do IMSA. IMSA. Let's start with Alex. Blake Miller, he says, thinking about when we can get back to racing, so many teams, drivers and media located in different countries. Uh, countries will likely be in different stages of lockdown. How does IMSA, or any other organiser really, handle it if only a proportion of the participants can attend due to restrictions? I think it's a, a very good question. I think we've got uh, not not multiple, all of the international championships grappling with exactly this right now imsa does have a very large contingent of international uh, drivers from all over the globe uh, but particularly from europe fair uh, number of people from south america as well um and there's a, there's an issue on this front as well uh, Stephen, that we were discussing before we came on air which is if you're going back early to racing and you're drawing people from all over the world or even all over your country with at the moment the hospitality industry at a standstill, where are these people going to stay, even if you're doing it behind closed doors? So there's a variety of pretty thorny issues which people are going to have to grapple with. There's things like, at the moment, the availability of flights, for instance. Certainly in Europe, I, mean, I was talking just a few days ago to a fairly significant UK-based team on the prospects of uh, getting to race in Europe where they, their belief is that flights likely won't be available and talking about having to look after their people and send them by road, which probably means, you know, a small minibus with no more than four people in it. So they can socially distance on that trip. Um, there's the big questions to ask you. It's not as simple as let's just switch the tap back on. There are big questions that need to be grappled with, so that you're not leaving yourself open to that public criticism or indeed leaving your partners and customers open to undue risk. It's going to be really, really interesting to find some of the solutions that come to in the next weeks and months without a shadow of a doubt on that one. It's a very good uh, question, Alex. Yeah, another, another problem that some organisers might have to navigate, uh, and this, this is certainly concerning things like the WEC, which is mid-season while this is all happening, is... Do you start the championship up again if, for instance, there's a couple of teams that are battling for a points lead in the championship and they happen to be two of 30 teams that can't turn up? So say you've got an American team racing in a, you know, and everyone else is from Europe and the American team can't carry on, but everything else could be fine. 
would you still hold that race if that team physically can't attend? Um, remember, you know, IMSA is an unusual position. Their season has started uh, in Europe. We're not in that position. We've not got uh, the European season having started with lockdown, whereas IMSA have already had the Rolex 24 hours. I think we're at that tipping point now where there's got to be a determination made soon as to whether or not people are going to cling to the opportunity, the option to uh, mount as full a calendar as possible, or that we move to something that looks altogether different at the moment. Certainly, I think people are trying to stick with their plan B. Plan A, of course, was the original calendar. Plan B being their um, second grab at that one and seeing whether or not there are any possibilities to make that happen. We've seen the recent days, IMSA talking about the process they're going to attempt to get underway with that. We've heard from SRO about uh, getting the teams to prepare with the kind of PPE they think will be needed in certain instances on pit lane and the garages, etc. Uh, we've not heard quite as much detail yet from uh, the ACO LMEM about their uh, preparedness for that. Their first race is at the moment time for July um, with testing and race in the ELMS uh, in uh, at Paul Ricard. So it's going to be interesting to see what the response of them is going to be on that front. But big questions to be asked and answered. Um, like I said last uh, last week's show, need to give them a bit of space to come up with the common sense answers before we start picking off their logic, I think. What's next? Mike Hogg says, Watkins Glen, question mark? I think you'll be very lucky if Watkins Glen happens in any meaningful sense. Uh, it comes back to really what the situation is in national and, in this t- case, state terms, uh, whether or not they're going to be permitted to have an event of any size. And remember, an event of any size includes the number of people that would have to be uh, there to actually make that event happen. To give you an idea in European terms, we're doing a bit of um, back of a fag packet um, calculation about a European Le Mans series race weekend, well over a thousand people, even without marshals uh, that would be required to make that happen. Of course, the vast majority of those people accommodated um, during the active times in quite a small area. Um, So it's going to be very interesting indeed to see exactly what uh, measures, what rules will be put in place, not just by the racing organisations, and for that matter, the individual organisations taking part. They might have their own views on what they want to do to keep their own people safe. But way beyond that, but in US terms, in terms of county, state and federal um, regulation and rules and attitudes that might need to be observed as well. So uh, an awful lot of watch this space still to come. I think he is referring to the fact that uh, IMSA had, has... I think Marshall ran the story on Racer that IMSA is intending to open its revised season schedule in June at Watkins Glen, and that's still the plan at this point. I, I think that's remarkably ambitious. That's as much as I'm prepared mm, to say at the moment. I think, that's, my, my I, think that's remar- I think it's remarkably ambitious. But then again, I'm not there in the United States. I don't know what the situation is at Watkins Glen. Uh, but the, the, here's the point. It's not just about what the situation is at Watkins Glen. It's getting those people there, keeping them safe on their way there, while they're there, and on their way back. And they are going to be the questions that people are asking right now. How far is Watkins Glen out of 
New York City? Would you That's have to go near up. New York City? No, you don't have to, but it's four and a half hours out. Right, okay. I was going to say, we wouldn't have to have people staying in New York, where obviously that's their epicenter. Not, not a chance, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nick uh, says, would LMP, uh, LMP2 be better served if they allowed a Joker upgrade every year, but at a capped cost to the customer? For instance, each year an Evo kit is made available, but at a reasonable cost. Um, I think that's a good question. Uh, whether or not every year would be right... I certainly think that the process we've seen through uh, the current iteration of LMP2 and the Joker process, it's in the... There's a pun there about it being a joke. Yeah, it's in the regulations, blah, blah. The reality is it hasn't worked. The reality is they've effectively created a one-make class uh, to all intents and purposes, in numerical terms, certainly. And you'd, you'd have to say, I would have liked to have seen the... Uh, the powers that be take a step away from that and say, this cannot happen again. We we can't have a situation where we've effectively written a regulation which negates the investment of a large proportion of our very valuable customers. And I'll say this much, in, the, in whatever the outturn is going to be from our current situation, um, you're not going to be able to afford to do that anymore because you will simply lose those teams. By the way, I'll apologise if you can hear in the background a mighty rainstorm has uh, hit us here and is bouncing off the top of you. Were sh- I thought you were showering, Grant. I do that all the time, uh, of, of DSC Mission Control. Um, but uh, I think they've got to think again about the level of flexibility they'll give in the case, the inevitable case, that one of the next generation of LMP2 cars will be general terms quicker than the others and i think you've you know you've got to give people credit here if you're going to do what they've decided to do and legislate for the fact that there will be four manufacturers then you really should be working a lot harder to make sure there's four at the end of that rule cycle not three and not two and where we are at the moment with a tiny number of active dolaras multimatic and slightly less tiny but you know uh, less than there were Ligiers. I hope that's part of the narrative and the discussion because if it isn't, it damn well should be. I, I want to have a, a micro soapbox moment if you'll allow me to, Graham. Uh, we'll just pause for the um, uh, for the obvious uh, Andrew Backer jingle. Hammers for you, hammers for me, hammers for everyone. Christoph Bouchou's hammer emporium. So I'm writing a piece for DSC, which we'll see in the, the coming weeks. Um, and I've talked to plenty of teams, drivers and personalities into this. And I want to say something about Evo kits. And I think it's a culture in customer racing specifically that has got to stop. I really, the more I hear teams and team owners and gentlemen drivers talk about this stuff, the less I think it's needed. Um, these are customer teams. These are wealthy gentlemen. These are private organizations that don't have an unlimited source of money as much as we like to think they do. So to get them to buy a car and then a year down the line have to pay 70, 80, 90,000 in some cases to upgrade their car to an Evo spec, which in a lot of cases doesn't make the car any quicker or any better. It just gives you a better BOP for the future because it gets political. And if you've got a car that isn't upgraded, you're going to be slowed down. It's something that after this specifically, after this situation where there's going to be financial downturn, we can't have this continuing. 
I know that manufacturers need to make their money and I know they're always thinking of ways to do that. But if you're telling all these LMP2 teams that after this financial um, crash that we're going to have uh, to do with the COVID situation, that they're going to have to upgrade their cars every single year, that's going to be an incredibly tough sell, especially as they'll have done their business plans on buying a car they can use for multiple years without having to tamper too much to it. It's going to make it worse if you keep adding costs here, there and everywhere to programs which should be relatively budgetable at the start of the season. Carlton says disagree. I think there's some issues to be talked about in terms of the way that regulations come forward. We're going to finish, IMSA, with Joseph Kang. Joseph is asking uh, about going back racing behind closed doors. Do they think they'd be able to get enough marshals and other volunteers as well? If they can't, what would they do? I think the answer is if they can't, we're not racing is the straight answer. But again, that is one of a very long list of questions that you absolutely know is being discussed right now. There might have to be very different arrangements for some of those volunteers uh, behind closed doors. Um, it's going to be incredibly interesting to see exactly what the appetite is for a variety of bodies and individuals that are currently involved in our sports uh, post this period of time. That wraps up IMSA. Uh, are we going to go to Weck, Aslam's, Elms and Echo next, Stephen? Yeah, let, and if, let's do it. And if we are, we're going to go... Weck, Aslam's, Elms, Echo. So, should we start with uh, Pete Lafitte's question? Pete uh, Lafitte, was, that is a Pete great Lafitte. name. Fantastic. Uh, he says, given that IMSA and IndyCar are budding up for post-COVID events, is there a chance that WC could do the same Hashtag me personally uh, wants to see a traditional Le Mans start incorporating the Olympic 100-metre hurdles. Uh, yeah, I've heard British touring cars are going to get involved with uh, the WWE wrestling uh, side of things uh, because physical contact is part of both sports, of course. Um, put it going more seriously, I think we've said it before, I'll keep saying it. I hope that this isn't just a recovery um, process, that actually we start to see... Um, championships, packages, thinking about uh, recovery in far longer terms. I think, frankly, they're going to have to, and that that might have the opportunity to add value for uh, the ticket-paying fans. You, I'm sure, would love to see, you know, ELMS and maybe something like British Touring Cars on the same bill. It's not something that traditionally has happened in the past. And by the way, that's just an example. Could just as easily be, I don't know. Uh, let's say WEC and Adec GT Masters, something like that. Why wouldn't you do that? Um, I'd like to see a lot more collaboration. I think we're going to be dealing here with quite large chunks of our sports fighting for their businesses and their professional lives. And I want to see some of the commercial self-interest of some of race organisers, uh, the big uh, bodies behind these things, putting their professional rivalries to one side and start to think about not just survival, but actually how they'd like that sport to look uh, into the near and medium term future. That's what I would like to see, Pete. Oliver, oh, sorry, should we go Travisaurus? He says yep. um, on Twitter, DSC's report, the Garage 56 effort uh, this week refers to the PSA. Could this mm -hmm. be hinting that an engine swap uh, happens in a Peugeot LM hypercar? with a biomethane unit, a more yeah. robust solution for such a young team at their first effort. 
Um, they're going to need help without a shadow of doubt. I know we've got other questions about this Garage 56 story that uh, with thanks to Matt Fernandez, we uh, gave a wider audience it previously had. Um, but uh, this is the vision efforts, uh, all French efforts, uh, looking to put a 2023 effort together for Le Mans with a biomethane-powered uh, fueled rather uh, hypercar of some description. Not clear whether or not they're talking about a Le Mans hypercar, or I think it's rather more a road-going hypercar that is kind of race-prepped. Um, they are some way away from making that a reality. They were telling Matt 10 to 12 million euros required, they think, uh, to get that programme together, and that's going to be clearly a lot more difficult in the aftermath of COVID-19 than it was before. But there are two levers here. One, national pride. Two, it's the centenary race for Le Mans. And it would be great to see somebody stepping in. Do I think there is a background program here uh, for PSA, Peugeot's parent company, of course? No, I don't. I think that's simply a matter of them uh, tapping into uh, professional resource and contacts. But if there could be some kind of payoff, wouldn't that be a corking thing to actually see that uh, potentially you've got Peugeot with their Le Mans prototype, whether or not that turns out to be a hypercar as they initially planned or whether or not they go LMDH uh, routes with a separate programme with a badge or two on it somewhere uh, from Peugeot or maybe another PSA brand uh, running in the Garage 56 effort. It gives them another string to their bow, doesn't it? I'm sure the big brains at PSA will have thought of that, uh, that's uh, some kind of technical partnership that could reduce the bill for vision uh, might have them coming forward. That, I should say immediately, before the internet goes wild and talks about that, is absolute supposition uh, on the basis of common sense from my point of view. I'd add this. We did say, remember, albeit again before COVID-19, PSA had signed off budgets for hypercar. If PSA decide they're not going to go hypercar, but they've retained that budget level to do LMDH, that means they've got some money spare. There's a there's a thing to conjure with. Mm. Dennis uh, Prokniak says, have we got any updates on the Glickenhaus LMH project? Uh, yep. In light of the engine news. Yep. Obviously, this is the uh, news. Uh, known some wee while back that uh, the Pipo Engineering Group, um, better known for their massive success in rally engines, are going to be putting together um, a turbocharged V8 for Jim Glickenhouse's uh, SCG007 program. And I'm due to catch up with Jim in the coming days for a conversation about how things are going with that, how things are going with the various other projects he's got underway, uh, including completion of their road car production facility in Danbury, the ex-Highcroft racing site, of course. Um, but uh, I think I just wish him well. It's an outlier. It's an outsider. We haven't had enough of these in sports car racing uh, in recent years. Probably, you know, Rebellion, obviously they're going to be walking away from the sports after Bahrain, other than another crack at Dakar. Um, but uh, and then beyond that, Lawrence Tomlinson and the Janetta LMP1 program, the Team LMT efforts uh, are probably the closest we've had to this. But Jim operates at a different level again than that. You know, wealthy individual that has long put his money where his dreams are, and we have the opportunity here to see exactly what that might look like at the highest level of the sport that's going to be available to him and it's uh you know if he can come out and that car can be 
you know, competitive and a respectable piece of kit, and I see no reason why it shouldn't be, what a fairy tale that could be. Uh, and at a point where the industry, the wider industry, is struggling for traction elsewhere, could there be a fairy tale there for Jim Glickenhaus and his team? It's very unlikely. I think Jim would accept that. But he'd also accept he doesn't go racing to make up the numbers. And, um, you know, this is, remember, a man that puts a program together that was good enough to beat all the German GT3 manufacturers to pole on the Nordschleifer. That takes some doing. Mm-hmm. Certainly does. Nick uh, Govniak says, will Multimatic put in a real effort for their next LMP2 car? Will they just use the license to build LMDH cars? I hope there's a business model for them. Um, I frankly don't think they would have been arguing the case to, to be back were they not in the mind uh, to relaunch their LMP2 programme. Um, just didn't get off the ground, really, did it? Very limited number of chassis, very limited success with those cars, very much behind the curve of Oracle and for that matter, Ligier, um, in that marketplace. Multimatic are a massively capable organisation, massively capable organisation, but involved in more projects than anybody listening here that's not working for Multimatic would ever possibly imagine they have been. Um, And I hope they do, because I would love to see somebody taking the the challenge to Orica and the established order in LMP2 when we get to that next rules rules cycle. It's certainly a question I'll be asking Larry Holt at Multimatic the next time we break bread together. Jakob um, has got a question about LMP2 as well. He mm-hmm. says, given the fact that the next generation of LMP2 cars are planned to be racing for a decade from now, do you know if the ACO and IMSA are thinking about enticing chassis providers to prep their cars for EV conversions should a sudden need arise? Also, does IMSA plan ahead like ACO with the 2024 hydrogen top class regs or is LMDH the only thing on their mind right now? Okay, uh, it's a good question. I know, I know. I have to say, I've reminded myself of something since the first time I, I read this. I'm pretty certain if we look back at what was announced at the Convergence press conference at um, Daytona, that they did say that those cars will be future-proofed for the potential introduction of new technology. The plus here, of course, for LMP2 chassis, because it will be those same four um, chassis for LMDH in 2022 um, that will become the 2023, we think, uh, LMP2s, is those same chassis will already have accommodated a hybrid system as LMDH. Do I think in the the first year of the LMP2 regulations we'll see hybrid LMP2? I fundamentally do not. Do I think that they are looking to build in the opportunity to do that or other things within the same rule cycle? 100% 100% yes, they do appear to be trying to do that. Hydrogen, there was huge levels of um, confidence within the ACO rulemaking organisation about the prospects to get that uh, up and running quickly. Um, it's gone relatively quiet, but then again, the sport's gone quiet. There's two sides potentially to this, aren't there? You, well, Let's call it three sides. One is it's dead in the water because there's no money available. Two is people are looking towards electrification. You can't really have part of the debate that says Audi and VAG are leaving behind uh, internal combustion technology because they're going um, non-internal combustion racing. 
uh, with and then they ignore the prospects that maybe hydrogen fuel cell forms part of that solution. So it could be bad news for DTM, good news in the future for uh, LMP. The other part of things could be that this is the way in which other manufacturers start to look that maybe you get a longer pause for some other prospective programs or, you know, not getting the green light from other programs, but starting to invest in that technology for an effective relaunch in the actually fairly near future. We were talking here 2023, 2024. Remember, there's been one other reset that now matters, which is the reset of the WEC calendar to a calendar year process which does make a difference in terms of when those regulations might reasonably come. The reality now is that they're likely to come effectively half a year later than they otherwise would. So it's a good question to be able to ask the ACO once they've not got their heads full of whether or not we're going to get a calendar and indeed the Le Mans 24 hours uh, this year. Carlos Villalobos says... Is the Ferrari thing a bluff again? <laughs> right, we should explain what this is for those that maybe haven't read it. Uh, this is to do with a statement that was issued to the Formula One press pack on the back of what has been reported as a misreporting by The Guardian in the UK that Ferrari might uh, walk away from Formula One should the cost cap be too severe. They uh, then corrected that. I put that in parenthesis with a statement to the Formula One press pack that said, no, what we said was if the cost cap bears too heavily, rather than give up the resources, we might look at a second program. And they name checked uh, the IndyCar, program, uh, IndyCar championship and WEC. Now, two levels here to talk about, Stephen, aren't there? One is they talked about that very clearly they would be talking there about a prototype program in WEC because there's already a GT program in WEC. Interesting, therefore, that they've thought about a global program, WEC. They talk about a North American program, IndyCar. The very interesting part of that is they've not mentioned IMSA at all. So that's number one. That is the statement that they've made. Second part of it is, is this yet another in a what seemingly lifelong series of political bluff and double bluff, prevarication, arm twisting, call it what you will, by Ferrari? The answer is we don't know. What we do know is that Ferrari have been actively involved in the process to look at initially Hypercar, later LMDH, the technical working groups they are members of. If they don't attend all the meetings, they certainly are part of the paper trail for that. We know they've been keeping a watching brief. We know as well that uh, there's been all sorts of machinations about can we have our own bespoke chassis, to which the answer is yes, you can. It's called the hypercar. Uh, then we've heard further uh, rumblings about can we name a chassis as a Ferrari? And the last I had in terms of a response to that was all options are being discussed right now. Make no mistake, if there was an option for the WEC to get a Ferrari a uh, prototype program as a small train goes past Stephen's house. Um, if there was an option to get a, um, which is another Marshall Pruitt thing, um, then there's, they would move mountains to get that pretty clearly because that, whatever you think of the brand, whatever you think about the sometime behavior of that brand, the reality is in terms of the reach that that would give for any championship, whether that be IndyCar or the WEC would be very measurable indeed. 
Um, I hope they find a way forward. I genuinely hope they find find a way forward because with the big brands come that exposure, come that opportunity to open up to audiences at the moment simply aren't looking because the parts of motorsport they're interested in aren't there to a degree in which they're interested. So let's fingers crossed, we hope. What's next? Yeah, and I apologise because the uh, the rain shower that was at your your place has now arrived at mine. Oh dear, <laughs> it's, it's 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 pretty loud. I think it's I um, think it's, it's rather more than a shower. It's just about to, it has indeed left here, and um, so everything's dripping. But uh, other than that, we're okay. Friend. What's next? Kevin Payne says picking up on the Garage Fifty Six theme. Uh, do you see there being more than one Garage Fifty Six and them all entering the full WC season? Hashtag me personally. I would like to see. Three similar concept Garage 56 cars do a full season. The icing on the cake would be IMSA also having Garage 56 style entries. Um, I, again, it's this is going to be one of those things. It's so hard just to get one, isn't it? Well, it's very hard to get one. But bear in mind the number of times they failed to even do that. I know you've you've mentioned the MG Project One. I think anybody that was telling the truth at Mercedes MG would tell you candidly that. I bet they wish they hadn't started down that road because that has been a massive, massive issue for AMG. You know, a prospectively halo project that they have simply struggled to get to anything close to uh, the kind of production, even limited production ready capabilities um, that you would hope. It's a marker here of just how tough it is to get racing technology in 21st century terms that's road ready and reliable that you would you would be prepared to hand over to a customer for the track or indeed the road uh that's amg project one what a spectacular idea that is uh but uh, you know you talk to anybody remotely close to that project and they will tell you uh that has been a massive massive uh, challenge for even uh, a, you know an engineering organisation as capable as Mercedes AMG and their partners. Look, I'd love to see it. Make no mistake, I'd love to see it. But the clock's ticking, and again, I think this is the forty-fifth time I've said it in this edition of the Week in Sports Cars. The the key to it is we don't know yet what economic situation is going to be for any or all of these organisations coming out of this. Frankly, would not be remotely surprised to see Mercedes-AMG turn around and say they're cancelling Project One as one of their responses to the challenges that come out from this uh, this uh, this crisis. Ken Gaines says, can the WC Spa 6 hours really go ahead? Can we not just have a schedule for next year so we can all rebook our travel before they charge us to do so? And number one, I wouldn't be booking anything right now, is a straight answer. Um, I, I'm sorry if anybody disagrees with me, but I wouldn't be booking anything right now. I think we just have to be patient. Uh, I'd like a little more communication than we're currently getting from a couple of uh, parts of the organisations we deal with, but I don't underestimate the difficulties there are here. As we said on last week's show, Pierre Fion doesn't know. He's a medical doctor whose brother was the, the Prime Minister of France. I'd suggest he's fairly well informed. He doesn't know. Uh, Stefan Mattel doesn't know. He runs GT Racing globally. Jean Tot who runs the FIA, doesn't know. They're going to be part, in varying degrees, of some of those working groups, those conversations that are happening at governments and global levels. They don't know. You don't know. I don't know. We're going to have to be patient. And I think we're also going to have to accept some of you guys out there as the the fans that 
make this what it is. You and I, Stephen, as people that work there as journalists, me as a broadcaster that relies is, uh, is livelihood on these events happening. I don't know. And I think we're just going to have to be patient and wait for the nod that says, get in the car or get on the plane. I don't think I'm going to be getting on a plane for some months yet. On the subject of don't know, Damien Peachin says, with the WC calendar change, what is the likely start date for the Peugeot programme to start racing? Uh, who knows? It's a straight answer. We were expecting to hear from them at the end of March about the shape of their programme. Was a, that was, the, I think, the last uh, we heard of it. But that clearly is now delayed. Um, I would suggest to you that if that is progressing in the background in terms of planning and the strategy behind it, that if we did get to uh, Le Mans in September um, or October or November, um, if we did manage to get there, that's the ideal place for Peugeot to create a bit of a song and dance about what they're going to be doing. And wouldn't that be uh, an ideal um, opportunity for the ACO to put some smiles on faces and some hope for the future? I hope whatever happens, if we do get a major endurance racing event, if we do get a Le Mans 24 hours, that I hope what we've got is a very busy day of press conferences and presentations from those that have got plans for the future. For me, that's the best possible thing that could happen right now is one, two, three uh, of the big OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, turning around and saying, We've fought this, we've won against this, we're still here and we've got ambition to show what we've got as an organisation and we're going to do that through racing. Wouldn't that be a real lift? Mm. Should we move on to fun, the final section? I think we've got to do that. We have got, by the way, you're pausing, but we have, Andrew Backer, because he's lazy, has not actually done as, can you believe it? He's not actually done as a jingle for fun. So What's he I been think, doing in lockdown then? Uh, I just, I don't know. I think he's just sitting in his arse watching Netflix. He's lazy. You know what I mean? Um, so the first question from the fun section is from Safe Phil. He says, hashtag me personally. Don't, don't get sim racing. Uh, you only have to watch the end for a result. Totally unrealistic. <laughs> I'm used to having to wait at least 24 hours for post-race scrutineering and sometimes months for things like Le Mans. Now race organisers um, have time to sort farcical post-race results out, do you think they will? I think it's, uh, if, you, if you're fans of the uh, the Dinner with Racist Boys, they're e-racing, um, <laughs> they're e-racing YouTube video warrants a look because they do uh, have a look at those aspects of racing that we're used to seeing on a regular basis, you would put it that way, and, uh, you know, the politics around it. Sim racing. <sighs> Cue the Bushu's Hammer Emporium jingle. Hammers for you, hammers for me, hammers for everyone. Christoph Bushu's Hammer Emporium. Sim racing, great. It's given us something to watch while we're uh, waiting for the rest of the world to resume. I think it's great that um, people have embraced that. Uh, it is absolutely not my cup of tea to either take part in because I'd be crap at it uh, or to watch uh, very much of because it just isn't something that rings my bell. I've been very happy tapping away as you have, Stephen, providing feature content for our readers for the last few weeks. It's given me very little time to do much else other than that. But, um, yeah, joking aside, 
it, it doesn't have that level of realism. Well, the upside is, other than the fact that we've got the same scramblings from everybody to get involved, I mean, I'm lost in how many different Sim series there are at the moment out there. It does seem to me that just about every major race organiser has got their own series. It's actually well, another SRO, one. isn't it? There's just multiple championships it's, everywhere. It is, and now we've got we've got all sorts of fan groups launching theirs and uh, just saw today, in fact, BRDC, the British Racing Drivers Club, are launching a fundraising um, uh, sim race championship. And good luck to them with that uh, after the fabulous work that a number of people in racing have been doing with fundraising for various charities, including COVID-19 related charities. Stand Up Sam Bird and be counted 30 plus thousand UK. And for that matter, um, Sven uh, Thompson at uh, Nielsen Racing, who's exceeded his target. Uh, for fundraising for NHS charities here in the UK. But shout out to Matt Griffin's daughter as well. She exceeded her target for a trampolining challenge. Did she? Just giving. Excellent. So there you go. So m- m- many people out there, you know, um, busying themselves with helping out. Sim racing, if you're enjoying it, I am absolutely delighted for you. I think it's been great that it's given uh, the people we care about a number of areas of the industry, particularly the drivers, to keep them busy i have not a lot of enthusiasm for writing about it and i've certainly got no enthusiasm whatsoever waiting at two o'clock in the morning to see whether or not uh, a sim racing championship results is going to be the same as it was when it crossed the line judging by some of the driving standards by the way it probably should have some uh, uh, some post-race uh, machinations um let's have a quick look what's next for you Stephen? joshua ponce says Given uh, If you were given the DeLorean from Back to the Future and were able to hit 88 miles per hour and travel back in time, which endurance racing of the past would you like to attend and report on? Also, he says it's great to have me back on the show. Thank you very much. I don't, don't know as much about the, the second one, but the first one... Um, well, it's the only person to put it, so that gives you a gauge, doesn't it? Did, are you sure you didn't type that in yourself? No, I don't. Fair enough. Um, oof. Okay, I'll give it this one. Sterling Moss, Millie Amelia. Damn it, that was mine! There you go. <laughs> Ripped it from your grasp. Um, what an epic race. A thousand miles around the roads of Italy. Um, at the average of all but a sniff, 100 miles an hour. In 1955, you know, um, that's 60-odd years ago, and I think that would have been pretty spectacular. What about you, Stephen? Don't say the Millie Millie. I've just said that. <laughs> oh, it, it's so tough. Um, well, maybe go back to... This is probably cliche as well. Maybe go back to the 1988 Le Mans 24 and see what the fuss of that Group C was all about. Go see the Jaguar win. It would have been quite cool. You, you've said that. you said that almost through gritted teeth as if you've had your opportunity... <laughs> Snatched away from you, we have to come up with something. Yeah, I'll have to set up a group C, eh, Graham? Yeah, oh, well, here's a, here's a further, time, that <laughs> further plug, by the way, is that um, the way in which that race was won by Jaguar, I've resurrected and updated a story uh, from Daily Sports Car, which will run next week, that tells you exactly the dramas that happened coming to the line uh, in 1988. An amazing story that came from Jan Lammers and from. Uh, Andy Wallace. So watch out for that one. Okay. What about Next. 1999 though? Just quickly, 1999 Le Mans. We, you were there for that one, right? Yeah, was it good? Well, it must have been awesome to be at. It. You know what? Here's the reality. 
the the ability to follow the race has improved dramatically over the last three decades. And, you know, as better communications around the track, better uh, opportunity with whether or not that be a more comprehensive commentary and radio system, better TV pictures coming, better opportunities to follow that on uh, social media and with data availability, better, better, better. The reality from Trackside was this, um, that... 98 and 99 had fantastic levels of factory involvement. 1998, uh, people forget, both BMW and Mercedes embarrassed themselves, uh, their cars out early on. 99, there was this kind of rolling awareness that something had happened. But unless you were there and looking at the screens at that time, you know, it could be hours before you realised exactly what had actually happened. So, you know... Yes, those years, those cars were amazing. The CLR Mercedes, to this day, I think is one of the most beautiful race cars I think I've ever seen. Um, but clearly just didn't work very well in Extremis. Uh, but they were amazing events to be part of the fan base for. Uh, it had absolutely lit my, the fire underneath me uh, at that stage. My levels of obsessions were reaching 11-year-old levels. Um I speak this as someone who was indeed the father of uh, an 11-year-old, and in fact, had been the father of two 11-year-olds. But, um, yeah, I think you'd have, you'd have enjoyed it thoroughly mm. as a fan, without a shadow of a doubt. I'm not quite sure you've enjoyed it as a journalist. No, it would have been chaos. <laughs> I would think that that press room must have been carnage. Well, I, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't internet era, really, uh, so it, it wasn't... It sort of was dial-up internet era. I have, I have a, a vision in my own mind of some of the people that you and I both know from the press room, almost literally standing on the desk, shirtless, screaming. Um, That's the kind of atmosphere I think it must have been like. And God alone knows what it must have been like to be a manufacturer's press representative at Mercedes. Uh, My guess guess is there's one word, absence. (laughs) Just run away. Uh, Absolutely. What's next? Nicholas uh, Patakas. It is now, anyway. He says... One for fun. I'd like to know Graham, Marshall and Kilby's best car, worst car and dream car in light of DSU's feature series. All road and or race cars slash carts, tin tops apply. OK, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do this a slightly different way. I'm going to give you my my own personal road car, best car, worst car, dream car. OK. Uh, as in ones I've owned, not ones I've borrowed. I've borrowed some lovely cars. Best car. That's a cracking question. Your Audi, sure. I do. I did love my Audi A6, my uh, my Audi A6 um, three liter turbo diesel. However, I'm going to say that my best and my worst car were the same car. Okay, Panels. and it, and it's going to be no, it's going to be a very unusual one. So these are cars I've owned, and it is a Peugeot six hundred five. Okay, if you don't know what the Peugeot six hundred five is. It was a big kind of executive saloon type thing. And mine was a different a different kettle of fish. It was a Peugeot 605, what was termed a Q6. So it had more power, so something over 200 brake horsepower. Uh, it was a six-speed manual car. It was a real-world 150-mile-an-hour car. Um, and it was the car I bought having just traded in I th- I'm trying to think, was it my? It was a. I traded in a Citroen ZX16 valve. Had a couple of French hot hatches, 309 GTI before that, uh, and I loved that car. 
and the first week or two with that car were utterly sublime. It was quick. It was comfortable. I absolutely loved it. And then it became the worst car when it shat itself so comprehensively um, that it ended up with me with the dealer in court and winning, but selling the car. So it was both my best car and it was my worst car. My dream car. That's a really interesting one. Um, When I think about dream car, I tend to kind of default to if you had to have one car to do everything, what would it be? And that tends to come down to a choice between two. One would be a very high spec Range Rover. I do like Range Rovers, but that wouldn't make the cut because it would, without a shadow of a doubt, be a high spec Audi RS6. Uh, I've borrowed a couple of those from Audi. They are mesmerically capable cars. Absolutely astonishing pieces of kit. And whilst you might sit there and say, yeah, wouldn't you like a supercar? It is a supercar. It just happens to be a supercar that could terrify the Husky. <laughs> Difficult for me because to do uh, exactly what you've done there because I've never owned a car. Ooh. I've only ever driven other people's cars. Well, in which case, you do it in a slightly different way, which is you know the, the world of car. Um, what do you think? Well, let's, let's start with a dream car. If I were to give you unlimited budget, which I should make clear very, very immediately, I'm not going to do. If I were to give you an immediately unlimited budget, what car now or in history would you like on the drive outside? Maserati MC12, my favorite supercar of all time. It's the only car, supercar wise, that I really had a big poster of and put it in my room outside of racing. Never really that interested in road cars. But that car is the only real supercar that ever cut, made that cut through to something that I really just just love that car. I do remember, by the way, you've uh, you've seen the uh, the supercar showroom at the end of my road. Mm. Uh, 21st just, birthday, around yours. It was, absolutely. Amazing place that sells just about everything. And uh, at times we've had the full set there, 288 GTO, F40, F50, Enzo, uh, in, a, in a row in there. And we did once have the road-going... Uh, Maserati MC12. And I do remember one of my close neighbours, um, still to this day, is Piers Maserati, ex-British GT and um, IMSA and uh, LMS racer. And I did, just for kicks, ask him to come round so I could actually have a photo call with Maserati and a Maserati and for no other reason, um, which was good fun. Yeah, it's a spectacular piece of kit without a shadow of a doubt, but obviously you're wrong, it's the Audi RS6. So the best car and worst car for me, so I'm going to go with cars I've driven rather than Mm -hmm. owned. Uh, Best car, Jaguar F-Type. Drove that on the Minamelia briefly. I don't want to name drop too far, but that was a just ridiculous experience. And that car is awesome and sounds incredible. Um, Was it the V8 or the V6? It was the V8. Yeah, well, Um, it's incredible. It's a dirty sounding car. Yeah, and you press the button and it just injects fuel into the exhaust and makes it even louder. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> worst car? Uh, worst car, driven a Fiat Panda. Sorry, no, terrible. Get out of town. The most lifeless, boxy Italian thing ever. No, sorry. Sorry, Fiat. <laughs> Ever again. That works. Let's move on. Um, this is a question for me, isn't it? From Jakob Bem. Okay, I'll, ask you, I'll ask you the question then. Question to Stephen. What made you go into sport reported on sports car racing? Masochism, I think. Also, for goodness sake, why with those two guys? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll shorten this story to make it less dull. 
Um, it's it, fairly dull. It's fairly dull. <laughs> uh, always interested in racing. My family is a motorsport family. Uh, my granddad used to run the kart club at Hoddesdon, so I grew up around a kart track, basically. I should say, by the way, I should say, by the way, because were your mum and dad stewards? Yes, uh, my mum used to do lap scoring, and I used to help occasionally. My dad yep, was like marshal and steward, and yeah. I should say, by the way, I was helping to run a championship in karting. At Holderston, the day that Senna died. Which is when my parents were there as well. There you uh, go. So your mum and dad and I were there on the same day. So always been into motorsport. Family always has. Uh, grew up going to watch races as a fan as well with my parents. And had a close friend who used to write, as a, he might still do, uh, for the Essex Chronicle. Um, and he used to report on drivers in and around Essex uh, for the Chronicle at Le Mans 24 Hours every year. Should say by the way, anybody, anybody that's not aware of what the Essex Chronicle is, it's like a newspaper and it weighs particularly bright white trainers. Yeah, and it's tanned. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the FT. Um, so, yeah, we used to go to Le Mans uh, back in the, the glory years, 2006, 2007, 2008, uh, with him. And he used to sort of dash off to the press room during race week. And I always just thought, I'm quite good at English. I'd love to be paid to be able to do that. That looks like a really cool job because I love motorsport. Um, and that's what made me want to do it, I guess. And hey, presto, I was stupid enough to write something that went on the internet and some a few people that Graham knew read and pointed me in the direction of Graham and I've never left. <laughs> We've tried to make him go. We leave milk by the door and everything. Won't go. Won't go. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> it's been a long association and what boring. We had some fun. Oh, yeah. uh, we had some very, very long and, you know, and taxing days at race meetings in between. But uh, the brotherhood uh, that you've got around sports car racing, the whole paddock. Uh, and, you know, for, for that matter, the vast majority of the press room as well um, is is a glorious thing to behold. I, I think, miss it so much. You know, that's one of the biggest things I miss during lockdown, aside from family and friends and you know, general stuff uh, about work is just sitting in the press room, going wandering up and down the pit lane, road trips, that sort of thing. Not not my road trip games. Not the games. <laughs> Some of the road trips quite, can be quite fun, except the ones that spa. Um, <laughs> the dullest journey in the world. Yeah, yeah. Just miss catching up with everybody, you know, yep. socialising. It's just the best part of the whole thing. No, they're all, they're all dead to me. Um, yeah. There you go. Okay, move on. Rob Chalmers says, what was your favourite? Obviously never going to happen. Team project car either in terms of background finances or the ever-present hashtag misplaced weighty knackers of audacity <laughs> Ooh, this is um i'm gonna go with there's uh, so many this does come back by the way to that uh, sports cars that never raced uh um series that we are still uh, plowing our way through. We've got a couple of crackers on the way. One presented yes. itself yesterday. You've seen that, Stephen. Not saying a single word, but uh, an LMP1 programme that came very close to being a thing. Uh, and I'm hoping we can have that online next week. Um, two things. I'll say it really quickly because we, we refer to it often. The potential of the Nissan. Uh, had that actually done what it should have done rather than could have done. Um, I think that would have been spectacular um i'll say this that peugeot didn't make it into wec in 2012 mm. i think that could have been something special and we would remember have got 
um, Toyota at the end of that season as well anyway. So we would have got to three a lot earlier than we did. Uh, that eventually, of course, happened in 2014 with uh, with with the um, the Porsche program. But maybe that, and it's a slightly boring answer, and I apologise for that, but simply because I think we could have got to the level of extraordinary competition we started to see at the end of 2014 and certainly in 2015 and 2016 in WEC earlier. Could that have rewritten history? Might have done. Could have done. Um, it could have made things very, very different. Um, they could have turned up and got their asses kicked, but you know, we'll never, ever know. And I think that's the thing about those, uh, those things is when you never, ever know, what the potential might have been. They tend to be the ones that people think back to and refer to. And oddly, the Peugeot one is one that people don't. And by the way, the Peugeot Hybrid 4 is on the list for sports cars that never raced. Fantastic. Uh, Any, anything that particularly occurs to you, Stephen, that's, that's crossed your orbit? Um, back in the day, I was excited about the potential for like the McLaren GTE program because that was yes. sort of the GTE was really taking off, and I thought that would just add another level to it to have yep. another factory of that of that ilk in there. Yeah, um, we just seen we have seen so many. I did I did like the is it the, the world to racing the uh, biomethane uh, garage fifty six idea. I thought yep. that's you know what that's something radically different, and it had it worked. That's the, the sort of project that can really you know, revolutionise an industry if yep. that had worked well. Um, we'll we'll see if it, it can happen, won't we? With, uh, it, it would be, good, if, it'd be good, to see, good to see somebody stepping up and putting the money in to see whether or not it's a concept that's got legs. Um, Aaron LMP1 as well has some good ideas behind it, the open the open source thing with trying to get loads of people to collaborate to create an LMP1 car. Very, you know, pie in the sky is probably too much to say. But it, I, it, I think that... He was very. He was a very passionate person, and his heart was in the right place with something like that. And had there been the finance and backers, that would have been interesting. Yeah. Okay. Let's crack on. Um, Geronimo Lazos. Hope you guys are keep still keeping the smile. I smile all the time, Geronimo. Ear to the ground and an open mic for the show. Heard in one of our podcasts that when you did our first twist, an unspecified radio program wasn't happy. Could you elaborate? Because I find it hard to believe why anybody could be bothered by that. Um, without going into specifics, neither can I. Uh, you know, it's not like we are putting ourselves into commercial competition with anybody. We're not. Uh, we collaborate with a number of other um, multimedia providers. Uh, I talk regularly to other podcast um, makers uh, in motorsports. There is absolutely no problem with that and you know have appeared on other people's podcasts and happy to do so um it saddens me to be honest with you i find that a real shame not much more to say other than that other than that you know that situation has not been a positive part of anybody's life and i would like to think that people will wake up and see that that was a mistake on their part but uh let's move on um eric harkrader says first to you Stephen. here what's the funniest thing that's happened to you while you're trying to do an interview with somebody uh you you did very well at pointing this out to me when we discussed this question before the show, which is the one and only time I sat down at length with Don Panos and rest in peace, Don. What, what an absolute family. legend! Um, was at Le Mans the year that he announced the uh, was it the GTEV? Oh, um, this was the one with the the, uh, the battery tray, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, 
So he'd announced that, and I got the chance to sort of sit down with him for 45 minutes to an hour and pick his brains. And we did it in a hospitality uh, booth overlooking the start straight at, at Le Mans. And it was like a 1940s New York poker room slash underground snooker club in the sense that there was it was just a bunch of people sitting around on sofas smoking cigars to the point where you couldn't see out the Don, windows. Don, there was Don wasn't asterisk. smoking cigars. Don smoked cigarettes, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. But it but it was just it was you open the door and it was like a smoking carriage on the tube. Oh. Um, and just sitting there trying to talk to him while he was coughing away. <laughs> Jane smoking was a particularly interesting experience, especially having having asthma actually coming up there coughing my own. I remember I remember smoked. you coming back and being in some some distress. Mine's mine's maybe yeah, a little it was, it, a, was a, it was an experience. Mine's um, maybe a little kind of fu- funny than that. Funniest things happened to me was a phone interview um with Oliver Gavin. And um there was a sound in the background and a pause and Oliver said I'm going to have to call you back. Someone just crashed their car into my house. Um, and But better than that, sorry, Oliver, but better than that, when he came back, I said, did you actually mean, he said, yes, yes, he, he lives on a bend in a village. And um, he says, it happens quite often. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it, we had to pause the interview because someone had indeed crashed their car into Oliver Gavin's house. Before we get on to the last question, didn't you bring up, didn't you try and ring Derek Bell for an interview and he was skiing when he asked no, 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 no. the The very first time I spoke at length to Derek, it was Jackie X's 60th birthday. And I rang just to get um, uh, some thoughts from Derek on that. We'd spoken before, but briefly. I'd never properly interviewed Derek to that point. He was stepping off a ski lift in Aspen and he stood um, at the top of the ski lift, obviously on skis, you'd think, uh, at Aspen for I think a good 25, 30 minutes and just gave me gold uh, on the subject of Jackie X and, you know, my um, lasting personal memories of Derek were forged in that half an hour. Such a lovely, generous, there's no better word than gentleman in those circumstances. And that prompted him to pick up the phone to Jackie. He'd forgotten it was his birthday and certainly forgotten it was 60. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that was Derek Bell on a ski lift. You kept him on the Christmas card list, single-handedly. <laughs> there you go. Um, final question, Stephen, for this one. And this mm-hmm. comes from Ski... I can't Steve. St- ski. Which uh, is the easy bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's Steve Kowalczyk. Huh. Which modern race would you add to the Indianapolis 500, the Monaco Grand Prix and 24 Hours of Le Mans to turn the Triple Crown into the Grand Slam? Years ago... Monte Carlo Rally, Mille Miglia, or Targa Florio would have fit would have fit the bill. The Monte is still run competitively, but it has been so watered down by the current WRC format that it's hardly the same events. I, I think there's two things to say here. Um, one is what you have to note from the three that the Triple Crown is that there are three different disciplines. So by attachment, you need a fourth discipline. So it can't be another Formula One race. It can't be an IndyCar race, which it wouldn't be, of course. And it can't be another sports car race. Um, I would say, how can I put this? Taking down my trousers and defecating on history. um, I think the Monaco Grand Prix has lost that now because I just don't think it's, it's, it's probably more 
uh, a race to be on pole than it is to actually win the race. I just think it's a it's a bit like the GT3 race at Macau. It's become a bit of an anachronism. Um, uh, I think you're looking at touring car racing. Uh, there's an argument, say, even GT racing, actually, thinking about this. Mm. And I think if you were talking about touring car racing, there are only two races you can think about with that level even remotely on that level of prestige. One is the Gaia race at Macau, and the other one is the Bathurst 1000. Um, I don't know about you, uh, Stephen, but I think Bathurst has got it. GT racing is is an interesting one. Maybe the, the Nürburgring 24 hours, or I, lo- I do like the idea of it being Bathurst. Um, be, it'd be cool with a touring car race for it to be something truly like that stands out, but Bathurst doesn't quite have what it used to have um, no. in, in terms of international status anymore, and it's not no. something like the British British touring car race at Silverstone isn't exactly no 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 it's touring cars. no 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 it's 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 got to be something of international significance, and the problem is that when you think about those those big events in other disciplines, things like Pikes Peak isn't what it was. I mean, it's still a huge challenge, but it's not what it was. It's not the unsealed road, roads thing. Um, the uh, Dakar is not really what it was. It's still a huge challenge, but it's not quite what it was. And I'm kind of if trying you're going to go think... really radical, what about, for instance, like um, MotoGP at Mugello? Like the Italian no, 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 no. If you're going to go Moto, there's only one race in Moto. The TT. It's got to be the TT, and and the chances of getting anybody to do the Grand Slam there, um, you know, are. It's not very, happening anymore, is it? <laughs> it's 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 not. I mean, I think you know, you you could look at someone like Valentino Rossi. Had he decided to actually attack this years ago, might have had the uh, the opportunity and the talent to do it. But um, I think that's the problem, isn't it? We, we're now looking at races that hold that status because of their history. And that history is in the past. And since then, the world has moved on. The reality is the Nürburgring 24 Hours is the most challenging GT race in the world. It's also, by the way, the most challenging touring car race in the world. But it's a national race. It's not an international race. Um, You're right that most of the other takers have moved on in terms of their status, the level of challenge, the fact that uh, in the case of Bathurst, it really is not now a kind of international all-comers race. It is a very specialist discipline indeed. Um, I'm struggling to find anything that deserves that place other than the TT in motorized sports. And clearly that's a very different discipline to Formula One. I think mm. we're done. Um, yeah. First things first, I'm going to thank you, Stephen, for being with us. Uh, I'm wishing well to Marshall and Chabral for... Uh, a little bit of peace and quiet this week after um, you know some really busy days uh, behind us I'm going to say thank you very much indeed to our listeners in increasing numbers keep coming back and listening and keep coming back and submitting those questions thanks as well to Ryan Kish again uh, our TSC colleague for putting the questions together for us most of all though for making this happen it's thanks again to Cooper Tyres to the Justice Brothers Uh, to Toronto Motorsports and to Bell Helmets USA. This has been the Week in Sports Cars podcast, part of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Network. I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Stephen Kilby. Marshall Pruitt's got his uh, sitting on his ass watching Netflix. We'll be back with you next week.